Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Today on The Nose, our weekly cultural roundtable, we'll be talking about jury duty, which is not exactly a reality show. It's kind of a melange of improv, sketch, reality show, prank show, and something else I'm forgetting to mention. Maybe a little bit of spoiled Kardashian. (laughs) Don't eat the spoiled Kardashian. It's been in the refrigerator too long. All right, but before that, we're going to have a conversation about a Supreme Court case involving the art of Andy Warhol. Uh, and whether or not it is transformative and who has to get paid and all those kinds of interesting questions. And I predict it will sprawl into a lot of different areas, especially since one of our guests is a choreographer who has to confront issues of copywriting the actual movements of the body. So we think it'll be a very good nose. We hope so. Enjoy it after this news. there's a Prince song for every occasion, but there are Prince songs for a lot of occasions, including a conversation for a conversation about a U.S. Supreme Court case that deals kind of objectively with the, an image of Prince. It's not a case about Prince by any means. We're going to talk about that in kind of an unusual step for the nose. We don't usually talk about Supreme Court cases. We might have done it once before. I have no idea. And then a little bit later, we will talk about the show Jury Duty. A huge hit on a platform most people were unaware existed, uh, never mind sitting right there on their Amazon Prime accounts. Anyway, that is to come. Uh, Right now, though, the panel uh, is going to delve into not just the Supreme Court case, but sort of issues of intellectual property, copyright, modification of work, transformation, and theft sometimes if there are thieves in the temple. Here to deal with all these weighty issues are Justice Carolyn Payne, actress, comedian, and dancer, uh, founder and director and choreographer of Kinetic Dance. That's going to become, I think, important in the conversation we're about to have. Justice Mercy Quay, founder and principal consultant for The Narrative Project, and Chief Justice Bill Usman. I don't know why I made him Chief Justice. That was a sexist thing to do. Uh, He's just a regular (laughs) justice. Associate Justice Bill Usman, uh, professor of media studies at Sacred Heart University. So, um, So, yeah, let me just quickly... First of all, the facts of this case... They're not irrelevant, but A, they're not particularly interesting to summarize, uh, and, and we're going to quickly you know, get into different territories uh, about them. But I'll do my best here. Let's see. So you've got uh, the you know, famous rock photographer named Lynn Goldsmith. I think it's 1981. She takes a portrait of Prince as part of a, an elaborate photo session. It's a really interesting portrait. It eventually winds up in the hands of Annie Warhol, I think at the behest of a Condé Nast, uh, I think it's Vanity Fair. Uh, they want it Warholized, which he does. 
they wind up with one print out of that, but there are quite a few more prints that are made, different prints that are made in the silk screen uh, and, and tinting process that Warhol is famous for. Um, and it turns out that later, another one of them gets used uh, as a magazine cover and a prints retrospective. Lynn Goldsmith is A, unaware that that's happening, B, uncredited <laughs> for the cover photo, and C, perhaps most importantly, not paid. Um, and so this is what winds up going to the Supreme Court. Uh, and I will, spoiler alert, <laughs> seven to two judgment, um, the Supreme Court and I will oversimplify, partly because I don't know how to do the complicated version of it, but basically what the Supreme Court seems to have found is that it was at least wrong that Lynn Goldsmith was not paid, that she should have been paid something for for her original photograph, even though that photograph had been kind of transformed by arguably the famous, most famous transformer in the history of all the arts, uh, Andy Warhol. Uh, there's much more going on there. But that's basically it. And the other thing I would quickly say is this case also attracted notice because it really, you know, kind of did turn into, uh, well, I'll, I'll get I'll get in trouble for, <laughs> for this term too. But it turned into kind of a girl fight between Sotomayor and Kagan, who are almost invariably on the same side of stuff. These are two titanic intellects um, uh, on the left side of the court. Uh, Kagan is very much you know, on Team Warhol. Uh, Sotomayor was very much uh, on a team Lynn Goldsmith and kind of the the rights of original artists to be compensated when their work is reappropriated. Um, Sotomayor, her opinion is the majority opinion that prevails. Okay, I think I did a pretty good job, but maybe I didn't. Uh, um, so, actually, Carolyn, I want to start with you. We we talked about this for a couple of hours on on emails today. And then kind of in the waning moments, <laughs> you suddenly <laughs> revealed that this is something that you really have to wrestle with quite a bit or have had to wrestle with quite a bit as a choreographer. This is an area where there are questions about, you know, what transformation means if you, you know, if you copy some steps that maybe look like Balanchine or the Carlton. Yeah, I I mean, I guess as I was like taking this in, I realized that this was so much more highly personal to me. To think about uh, artistic copyright, I, I have personal experience with it, but just in general, as as a choreographer in the dance world, uh, choreography it's it so it, it is so complicated. You have these great classical, specifically in ballet, you have these great classical ballets that have existed since like the late 1800s. So you have like your Swan Lake, your Sleeping Beauty. They were, for the most part, originally choreographed by this guy Maurice Petipa. And his choreography has just been repeated. It, it, it's done like hundreds of times every day. Somebody is performing this ballet and it's staged by someone or restaged or re-envisioned. And there is no estate to Maurice Pettipa that it is paid out to. And um, it has been really debated how much he did and what versions people are doing now. It's fascinating because obviously what he set was before the era of video. So everything was kind of this like oral dance history. So with that framework from that, then you go into like nowadays where everyone's a dancer on TikTok and everyone is creating moves, people who are not choreographers, not dancers, but there are very distinct laws kind of, or ways that dancers look at laws that things that they can be protected and not. Um, and it's so complicated and so wild. And there are very 
like for example, Michael Jackson's moonwalk is not, he, they were not able to co- to copyright that because that is a step. It is a step that can be, it is not, whereas single ladies choreography done for the Beyonce video by this choreographer Knight, he did, was able to choreograph the single ladies choreography because it was considered to be a series of steps that could be described and had like a framework. Yeah, not only that, so, but he he formed a kind of ASCAP for dance, this guy Knight. Uh, he did. Jaquel, Jaquel Knight, uh, he formed this kind of ASCAP for dance where, you know, if you are a, a creator of dance moves, dance steps, something that could be maybe considered IP, uh, you can work with him and he will kind of help police things. But it is the most amazing thing in the stuff that you sent over. Not the most amazing thing. The funniest thing is that in the game Fortnite, apparently, yes. you can pay a fee so that your character can do certain dance moves so that your dancer can do the the Carlton or something. So Fortnite has yep. monetized these dance moves that Fortnite, of course, did not invent. Yeah, go ahead, Carolyn. Well, and then Fortnite obviously got into trouble for that because they weren't they weren't always returning money to the person who created right. that dance. Although I think they mostly won those cases. Um, yes. Yeah, they mostly mm-hmm. won those cases because for the same reason. It's a it's a series of steps not necessarily a piece of choreography. So, Bill, I, I think, you know, once again, I relitigating this particular Supreme Court case is, first of all, beyond our capabilities and also wouldn't be that much fun. But I think there are two goods that are in, con, in some contrast or conflict with one another. One of them is the idea that artists, that creators, should get paid for their work. You know, if they do, that's how they you know, put bread on the table. Uh, they should be compensated for the work they they do. If their work is reused by somebody, by a big magazine or something, they should get compensated for that. That's one good. The other good is the kind of notion of art as a constantly evolving system of transformation. Here on the nose, we we operate, or we often cite the Slattery principle, named after the great thinker Brian Francis Slattery, uh, who said, I think one day on the nose, if something seems remarkably original to you, it probably just means you don't know the content on which it is based. Um, and there is some truth to that in art, that there's nothing new under the sun. So, you know, if you're going to drop the hammer on Pharrell Williams or try to sue Ed Sheeran over music that kind of sounds like some other music, you will create a chilling effect. So, so one good people ought to get paid. The other good, people ought to feel kind of free to take what exists in the world and make their own truths, artistic truths about it. So please, uh, Mr. Chief Justice, uh, resolve this right now, immediately. Well, I'm doing the Carlton right now. Uh, <laughs> but the, you're, so doing the, you're doing the Steve Carlton, which involves plunging your hand <laughs> into a bucket of sand. Anyway, continue. It's a good thing this is radio yeah. so that we don't get sued right. for that. But um, no, I think I love that you all chose to start the episode with princes thieves in the temple, because <laughs> as you said in the emails, Colin, I think that, and and you just said it in, in different words just now, I think that is at the heart of what is culturally most interesting about this case of what is mimicry or thievery and what is actual, you know, artistic creation that's building off of uh, something that came before, as Slattery points out, and others have as well, what what art form doesn't do that? What art form doesn't borrow? What art form doesn't appropriate? What art form doesn't transform? And I find myself 
um, I told you all in the minority, in the dissent on this case, as I am so often with the Supreme Court these days, um, and I find myself agreeing with Kagan and Roberts, even though the, the second part of that makes me want to go take a shower, because while I agree Lynn Goldsmith should have gotten paid, should have gotten paid something, I I'm I'm down with that. I've written books. I want to get paid for those books. I don't want other people to just slap their name on it with, you know, like a slight alteration to the table of contents and have me be erased. But to me, the larger issue is this one of how much are we going to lock down artistic creation if we start drilling into uh, these these questions that are really difficult to answer, and I don't think the Supreme Court should be an answering about the very act of creation. And believe me, the big media corporations like Disney, Disney is notorious for this, they want to lock down everything. They wouldn't even want me to be able to mention Mickey Mouse on this episode without having to pay a fee. So I do worry about the, the precedent that this particular case might set because of that tendency to try to, you know, really kind of lock down what we're going to consider to be legitimate artistic transformation. Well, that's very interesting, Bill. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for I'm saying I'm doing the Carlton, you're doing Mickey. Like, what is going on? No, Minnie's doing Mickey. Sure, but anyway, um, so yeah, um, Mercy... Yeah, I'll get in trouble for that probably. Um, <laughs> so we're I don't know. Just take the wow. baton, take the baton, and run <laughs> I just in got some it. direction uh, with this. I mean, I don't know. You actually know Brian Francis Slattery, inventor of the Slattery principle. I mean, are you sort of comfortable with that idea that art is transformation? That you know, that creators should expect as part of even the honor of being a creator that their work will be repurposed. Yeah, I think, I mean, there's something to it. I think art is transformation, but more importantly, art is iterative. I think that each generation gets an opportunity, should get an opportunity to take up a work of art and iterate on it. Um, you know, don't tell Disney that. Uh, I think that there's this way that we're going to see ourselves having this argument for a long time, particularly with AR, AI generated art that, mm -hmm. you, know, it, you know, the prompts are in the style of X. Right. If we aren't able to get in front of or maybe even just deal with the ways that we um, appreciate and consume iterative art, I think we're going to have a, tr uh, a great deal of trouble with AI art um, in the coming months and years. But I also think that when it comes down to it, um, copywriting things like steps, copywriting things like like chord progressions, when I think of Pachelbel. Pachelbel's canon, and I think about the million songs that crib that uh, that chord progression, right? Everything from uh, Joe Jackson's Hometown to Maroon 5's Memories and Forever Young, right? It's just, uh, it's a chord progression that a million songs that we've heard and come to appreciate can uh, have used to, to, I don't know, tug at our heartstrings because they know, they know that it works. But at this point, I'm kind of, curious about Marvin Gaye's family when it comes to things like, um, you know, what we're going to talk about next, Ed Sheeran, and for instance, you know, their 2018 attempt to uh, sue Robin Thicke and Pharrell 
um, uh, well, actually, you know, settle with Robin Thicke and Pharrell on blurred lines. At this point, I'm just wondering if Marvin Gaye's family works anymore or if they're just listening to the radio to kind of see who's cribbing from their work at this point. And Black, t- t- uh, Black Twitter also took to the streams to make that point exactly. Yeah, I mean, I sh- we should say about the, the Pharrell case, and actually he sued Bridgeport Publishing, which is the uh, owner of the Margaret. Uh, this a- it a- often works this way, is that the kind of um, party you would think would be getting sued is actually looking for declarative relief in advance. I don't know why that's a good strategy. <laughs> it actually doesn't seem to be a good strategy. But anyway, um, and, and in this case, they did. Lo- they, I think they may, may have won in a lower court and lost on appeal. I'm getting these cases mixed up a little bit, but but ultimately, uh, Pharrell Williams lost uh, on the on the blurred lines case, and, and the the court also ruled about what rhymes with hug me. So uh, it was a very comprehensive judgment. But uh, that was a joke. Um, so so but, but in that case, I mean, you know, Carolyn, I think there's a really chilling effect when something like that happens. When in fact. The Marvin Gaye Foundation, Family Foundation gets $5 million. Um, it means that everybody starts thinking about, well, why don't I sue Ed Sheeran? Then? <laughs> or why don't I sue this person? Why don't I sue that person? The worst that can happen is I'll lose some court costs. And to me, you know, for a creator like you, first of all, it sets up a cycle where young creators wind up having to pay old or possibly dead creators, which I think is a way to kill off art. <laughs> but it, there's, <laughs> also, there's also just a way of kind of there's a chilling effect. Like, what, what if somebody goes after me? I don't know. As a creative person, what's your response? Well, I, I remember like early on coming up with uh, an idea, like a concept for something choreographically. And I was Googling to see if this existed anywhere and, you know, trying to watch a bunch of YouTubes and an older, you know, like a mentor in the dance world said to me, well, there's nothing new under the sun. <laughs> so you probably, you know, there, there is going to be something like that out there. And I mean, that is true. Art comes from art. It comes from everything. So if we perpetuate this fear and this like stifling sense of, you know, anything you create, somebody can come after and say that they did it first that's not going to create a a healthy environment for artists to feel that they can feel that they can create. But at the same time, I think that, you know, as an artist, we have responsibilities to identify our inspirations and give credit uh, when credit is due, Um, which is, I, I, again, dance makes it a very complicated thing. Music is, kind of less so where like you have Ed Sheeran arguing that like these same chords are just a sequence of chords that everyone uses. It's like dancers saying, well, these are just steps that are part of a technique that everyone uses. Uh, So I I just think it is such a gray area. And I think it is such a daunting area to kind of look at from a legal perspective and as, and from a creative perspective, that's all being said, I have copyrighted choreography. I have gone through the process to copyright one piece of choreography, uh, mostly because of the concept of it, um, is what I was trying to protect. Um, in the context of my Nutcracker Sweet and Spicy, I, I did copyright the snowball, which if you've seen the show, you understand why that was important to me to try to protect that from being used in another context by another person. So get out of here, Beyonce. Yeah, go ahead, Mercy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and at the same time, uh, Carolyn, just sort of like, you know, trying to copyright a kickball change is very different than trying to copyright the Dougie, right? So, a- yes. So that's the thing. And that's with choreography, when it comes to copyright, um, it's 
kind of, they try to make it like music. Like you are trying to, you have to present that like a composition of music, you are creating something that is a series and it is detailed and it is specific and it has a setting and a context that is coherent enough to be repeated, uh, you know, continually. Yes. And replicated. Um, and so you do have to kind of have, it is a lot easier for me to choreograph something like a snowball scene because it has a concept that ties together these steps that are the choreography. It is a lot harder to, to go, to go after if you created a TikTok dance that has six steps in it, that's a lot harder to, Mm -hmm. to, uh, protect. So, you know, Bill, you said before that you're uncomfortable with the courts adjudicating these questions. And I understand that. And, you know, the idea of, you know, Brett Kavanaugh imposing his ideas about the fine arts um, seems a little uncomfortable for me, too, except that somebody has to. And they have yeah. there has to be a framework for resolving these disputes because these disputes are going to happen all the time. And, yeah, courts make bad decisions. I actually I mean, you can't really sort of say something was a bad decision if you didn't you know, like read the entire transcript and maybe mm-hmm. watch the trial. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the, the Pharrell Williams case just struck me as a bad decision um, and, and, a, and a decision that kind of harmed the arts. But, you know, there are certain standards that they create that are maybe useful. For example, there is kind of the Yankovic stan- standard, and that is that if you are doing something that is a commentary, a specific commentary on the original work. You have great mm-hmm. latitude and quite a bit of protection from from litigation. So, I mean, in other words, Al, you know, Weird Al plays these things kind of note for note, but with new lyrics. But his protection really is, it's a joke about the work itself. Mm-hmm. And that gets mm-hmm. gets back to a case which I believe you testified in, which was the uh, the two live crew, uh, Roy, Roy Orbison <laughs> case, uh, where Pretty Woman, women, pretty woman was uh, expropriated and, and made into a big hairy woman or whatever, whatever it was. But, you know, the, there, the court at least has some kind of standard. They're saying, okay, but this is sort of about the original work. Yeah. I mean, two live crews reason for existence seemed to be to end up in court as much as they possibly could, because <laughs> uh, there's lots of other two live crew cases if you uh, start looking through the records. Um, yeah, you know, when I when I say that I'm uncomfortable with the court um, weighing in on this, it's because I don't really trust their artistic uh uh, tastes or, or, or knowledge or any of that. But as you say, I, I present a dilemma without a solution because you are right. You know, someone is going to have to intervene. I think what's really, really important to me is that we don't let fair use be gradually eroded, which is, which is clearly what, you know, corporations want. They, you know, they, they, they want the fair use they see as an enemy to their property, but fair use was deliberately written into copyright law in order to be a check on overreach and, you know, basic, you know, it's, it's a complicated law and part of it has to do with how much you're using and that kind of stuff. But basically it comes down to, you know, Is there some sort of transformation, whether it's commentary, criticism, parody, or education? Um, So in a lot of the stuff that I do, I really kind of fall back on the education or the commentary or the criticism aspects of of this. In the Yankovic case, it was parody, you know, and we, and we, what I think is really important is that we don't back off from that, that we really are kind of 
strong advocates for fair use, even with acknowledging that, you know, artists have a right to their work and to profit from their work. And so in this case um, of the Andy Warhol thing, you know, the question really becomes, is it transformed enough that it's some type of commentary or criticism? And that, I think, is what this really hinges on. Other cases have also dealt with that, like the famous uh, Shepard Ferry Obama Hope poster, mm. which was also based on a photograph and went through, you know, some of this same sort of litigation and questioning. Right. And so, I mean, there's so much to say about all this, but I mean, one aspect of all this, Mercy, is it can get really expensive. Like, I mean, Ed Sheeran's got a lot of money, so I'm not worried, but it cost him a lot of money to win the case. You know, he mm-hmm. missed his grandmother's funeral. Uh, it cost him a lot of money. He was, right. he was tied up doing all this stuff. And, I, you know, anybody who does any, I got a hello letter from Woody Allen's lawyer one time who didn't like the fact that I'd written a piece in which I kind of parodied Woody Allen's <laughs> style, which is funny <laughs> because that's what Woody Allen has done for his entire writing career. If you mm-hmm. go back and look at his old New Yorker pieces, that's all he ever does is make fun of somebody else's writing style. So I would have won that case. But, you know, unless I could get one of my lawyer friends, you know, if I, maybe I could right. get Mr. Carp to represent me for free or something. But otherwise, I'm really screwed, even though I haven't done right. anything wrong. And that's, I think that's another aspect of what Bill's saying. This isn't a good system that way. Maybe there should be binding, you know, arbitration, have Lucian Freud decide whether you've done something wrong. I mean, something, right? Because I think the the creators that tend to lose out on these things the most are Black creators. As Sharon said it himself, that, well, I'll say Black and low-income creators, folks that don't have the money to, you know, have their day in court and make their arguments. I think that Ed Sharon said it himself. He was sort of like, you know, I had the privilege um, to take it to court. And either way, it's a lose-lose because you're spending time and money defending yourself. Um, and you, I think that teenage black, black, um, creators on TikTok that are making dance sequences that get co-opted for Fortnite for Grand Theft Auto, well, not Grand Theft Auto because they haven't put out a new, uh, Grand Theft Auto in years, but, uh, all these video games, um, with purchase, uh, privileges in game, in, in, in app purchases where you can, uh, purchase these games and purchase these dances right in app where not a penny gets sent back to those creators, it creates a divide and it creates a a real disparity between who gets to take and claim credit for their art and their creations and who doesn't. I think back to, you know, 2000, uh, just last year when Taylor Swift was defending herself against 3LW for the, for the freezing play is going to play and hate is going to hate. And I know that, you know, in 2000, in the early odds, I was listening to 3LW all the time, and I know that that lyric. But I can't, I can't say that 3LW owns the phrase "play is gonna play and hate is gonna hate." There's, there's no artistic, you know, iteration on that phrasing. When Taylor Swift says "play is gonna play, 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 hate is gonna hate, hate, hate," but 3LW is a is a black, um, you know, they're a black group from the 90s and early odds, and so. The, the question becomes, who has the privilege to defend their creation and who doesn't? I think the phrase mm-hmm. originally appears in Ecclesiastes. But anyway, boy, <laughs> anyway, boys and girls, it's time to end up this whole segment. I hope you've had a lot of fun listening to it, boys and girls, because we're going to talk about jury duty after this. <laughs>
Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. And it's uh, we're, we're back with the nose. We're going to go from justices to jurors. Um, our panel is uh, juror Carolyn Payne. She's juror number eight. Uh, Mercy Quay is juror number five. And Bill Usman is uh, juror number 11. I'm an alternate. Uh, the series is Jury Duty. Uh, it is a melange of styles, improv, sketch, reality, prank, probably something else that I'm forgetting or not noticing. Uh, it brings together um, 11, ju- 11 actors who are pretending to be jurors or 11 performers pretending to be jurors. Uh, and a supporting cast pretending to be bailiffs and judges and things like that. And one one innocent person, <laughs> a guy named Ronald, uh, who doesn't know that the whole thing is a gigantic pantomime going on around him. So uh, let's hear a little bit uh, from this. This is from episode six, uh, which is called Closing Arguments. You will hear the uh, gentleman who plays the judge uh, and uh, some of the people who play jurors. And you will hear Ronald Gladden as Ronald Gladden. He is the person who doesn't know that there is a hoax happening around him. Be one, Gene. Mr. Morris, just so you know, this is your final chance to tell your story to the jury. Are you ready to do that? Um, I, I don't, um, my co-counsel and I are not uh, prepared to make a closing statement today. I knew this was going to happen. I actually called out specifically what was going to happen. Plaintiff was going to make a closing statement. Something crazy was going to happen. We adjourned for the day. Here we are. How are you that psychic? Because this happens every day, Barb. (laughs) There has not been a single day that we've had that's just been smooth. There's always something crazy that comes up. (laughs) This literally feels like reality TV. Oh. (laughs) So, Mercy, this is uh, obviously sailing very, very close to the wind uh, on this one. You're hearing Ronald Gladden, the guy who doesn't know that it is reality TV, saying it's almost like reality TV. But you also hear... You know, I I don't know. There's a really interesting tension that gets created here between this guy who's trying to live in a semi-sane world and a world that is purposefully being made as crazy as possible around him. So with that, I whatever you want to say about that. (laughs) Whatever I want to say. So, I mean, I thought that the series was immensely hilarious in the first two episodes and it sort of teeters off from there and sort of, you know, I start to question the ethics of having a person miss about 15 days of his life being sequestered in a jury for, um, you know, a questionable reality where everyone around him is acting and manipulating him. But in the first two episodes, you the shenanigans are just so wild mm-hmm. and insane that I'm captivated as a viewer. Um, you know, you've got a, a juror 
um, you know, trying to get out of uh, jury duty by saying he's racist. And in the last episode, when they sort of give a uh, a full uh, summation of how they pulled the whole thing together, we start to get a little bit of Ron's um, uh, inside thoughts where he's like, at this point, I sort of knew that there was something going on. And I thought it was so crazy. But then the producers are saying it was crazy that he mentioned uh, the Family Guy episode because they wanted that to be in the show. And so I think this is something that pulls, that gets pulled together through a lot of work. But I actually found myself questioning the ethics um, from episode five and on is sort of, it, two weeks is a lot of time to miss out of your life when you can't really speak to your friends or family for two weeks and you think that you're, you know, participating in a legitimate documentary. I think that it becomes a question of ethics and how much how much money is worth losing two weeks of time? Right. I don't think it's mentioned in the series, but Ronald Gladden also missed Ed Sheeran's grandmother's funeral. Um, <laughs> so, um, yeah, I know. I don't know. Well, Carolyn, I'm going to go to you with this. I mean, we should say I think it's okay to. I think it's been in the news enough to know that he he did eventually get paid. You know, pretty hefty fun uh, sum for all this. And it's like 1.38 on Friday. He's got to be dating a Kardashian by now. Um, I mean, there's sort of a way in which, yes. I, I he has a girlfriend. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, maybe he has two now. But um, and I, by the way, this is no, in no way meant to diminish Mercy's point, which I think is spot on. There is a real question, no matter how much you reward somebody with either riches or fame or both about how much how ethical it is just to screw with somebody for that long for our entertainment but on the other hand carolyn i know that you did find it very entertaining i did i mean to to that point he he signed a contract in the upfront so he knew he was being filmed for tv and we live in an era where you know like that they're going to manipulate everything anyway even if it is in a documentary context uh, but I love this because, and I mean, as I said in email, I was, I am probably exactly who they were targeting this for. <laughs> I'm a fan of Christopher Guest, like mockumentary shows and films. Um, I'm a total geek for improv and comedy. Um, I love like true crime documentaries. I will sit and binge those all day long, like courtroom stuff. Give it to me, even in simple forms, like people's court. Uh, I love quirky reality TV. So this like hit this checked every box for me. Um, and it really it delivered. Um, and and I think that this for me, what I sat here when I was binging it and watching it last weekend, all I kept thinking was how did they luck out and find this guy from mm -hmm. Craigslist? Like from Craigslist, guys, have you ever gone to Craigslist to find something or someone? Yeah, I, th I, think, I think one wrinkle might be that, and this is something that our producer McCusker uh, told us yesterday. I think in, in California, you can volunteer to be on juries. Like, you know, you, you haven't even been called. Uh, so yes. that, that may have helped make it possible. And yeah, I, I read somewhere that there were 4,000 people who answered that ad and they, they got this guy. And Bill, I know one of the things that you have talked about as we're getting ready is what does anchor this is he does manage to be something uh, of a moral pivot point and center of stability in this deliberately chaotic situation. Yeah, he just seems like this really great guy. Um, I kept telling you all, the thing it reminded me the most of was the office. You know, if Jim 
had been, you know, a real person and all the rest of them had been actors. Yes, actors are real people, I know, but you know what I'm saying. <laughs> um, and, you know, he's, he, he really, it, it ends up, Mercy's point is absolutely correct. Right. There are some really questionable ethical things here, just as there were with Nathan Fielder's The Rehearsal, which, you know, there's some common touch points as well. Um, but, you know, he's such a good guy. It ends up with just the, there's a certain warmth about it. Uh, there's a certain, you know, oh, I told you all almost like a Ted Lasso. I haven't lost faith in humanity yet because you know he's just so kind to everybody mm -hmm. around him even when what they're doing would be so off-putting if we encountered it in our real lives and so there's something about that along with i agree with both um mercy and carolyn the hilarity of it i was laughing so hard at so much of it from you know the chance of you know the chair pants to the crazy video that the incompetent <laughs> well, actually, attorney to, tried to show just to give people a little sense of this uh yes there is a guy named todd he's apparently a nerd or a geek although in my house i've been linked to him <laughs> i can't imagine why that would be uh but anyway he uh he does wear uh, a pair of pants that has kind of a chair coming out of it, and they start to be called chants. And anyway, you're going to hear a little bit of Todd and more of Ronald Gladden and some of the other jurors here in this clip. B2, Gene. Todd is a very interesting individual. What the hell? Oh, hello. How are you? What are you doing? Yeah, oh, Todd, just, one of these. I was just sitting before we uh, went off to court. Are they crutches? Uh, these are um, uh, chair pants or chants. Today he showed up wearing chair pants, which he calls chance to abbreviate. Hello. It's essentially two crutches. I'll just sit here. That he's attached to like knee pads and then he's attached them to his backside. You straight? Um, uh, the sort of the straightness is the difficulty of the lack of a bend. Jesus Christ. You need help, bro? You, you I'm struggling. Good. Like... The only um, part that uh, is uh, slightly inconvenient about these is interacting with other chairs when you're wearing them. You a fool, bro. Um, but otherwise, they're whisper quiet and really convenient to use. If it does seem a bit like The Office, uh, one thing Mr. McPants would like you to know is that Lee Eisenberg and uh, Gene Stupnitsky, who are the two creators of Jury Duty, come out of The Office. They were That's where mm -hmm. they worked, and, and they have a lot of the same rhythm. So, Mercy, there's a name we haven't mentioned so far, and that name is James Marsden. So James Marsden plays this kind of... <laughs> he plays this kind of exaggeratedly spoiled, privileged version of himself. He, he identifies himself as the actor James Marsden, uh, and he's like the celebrity who's just happens to be on the jury. I called for the jury. Didn't have any choice. Uh, and and he's, in a lot of ways, besides Ronald Gladden, the other person around whom this series at least occasionally seems to be orbiting. So maybe say a little bit about the job you think he's doing. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I thought it was a little overdone. I mean, and I, I'm specifically not saying like medium well or well done. I'm saying it was overdone. Like it was cooked. It was his performance was we get it. You're an actor. You are petulant. You are deserving. You are privileged. We get it. And, you know, it worked for me in episodes one and two, but then it starts to wear off. I'm probably getting as intolerant of Marsden as uh uh ron is getting <laughs> right like there's this way that 
it, the shenanigans get bigger and bigger and bigger. And, you know, they're really, the producers are really testing the bounds of what Ron will accept. And I think Ron is testing, um, he's, he's pushing his, his tolerance to the nth degree. And for a viewer, it's sort of like, there are those, there are those character actors who play a villain and they play a villain everything they've uh they'll do in their career and you start to hate them this was probably that turning point for me for marsden it was like i need to see you in something i need to see you unscripted in something where you're a good guy because this turned me off to marsden but but then he was was doing his job really well then you know he was doing his job really well but now because it because it's quasi acting i kind of want to see more of him unscripted to learn a little bit more about marsden everything else i've seen him in i've been a fangirl for 27 dresses that Benny and the Jets sequence was great. I, you know, I, I loved him in the notebook, even though he's not the guy from the notebook, he's the other guy from the notebook. I've, a fa- <laughs> I've been a fangirl from, of Marsden for years and this kind of turned me off. I, 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 the one thing that I wish that I could unsee was the poopy toilet scene. I, oh, like if I, yes. My, <laughs> my, showing it. My life, uh, my life is worse for my having seen yes. that. If I could Why just, did they have to keep going back if, to it? Yeah, no, if Will Smith could show <laughs> and, and Tommy Lee Jones could show up with a neuralizer and just take that one thing out of my head, I'd be yeah. so incredibly grateful. Uh, but yeah, I, I, don't, I don't know. That there, Carolyn, it's probably wrong for us to try to extract morals from this, except that it is, you know, Bill brought up like the Milgram experiments and stuff like that at the beginning. There is a way in which you have to ask yourself some questions, but Carolyn, maybe just, you know, Ronald Gladden is going to get so much out of this. It just doesn't matter. Yeah. I had no moral problem with this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I probably, well, that's you, Caroline. I'm probably asking but, yeah. the wrong person. <laughs> yeah. Predictable. I, I don't know what that says about me. I don't know if that makes me as unlikable as the heightened version of James Marsden in this. I don't know. I just kind of felt like, you know, I get that we're trying to say that Ronald was sort of an unconsenting uh, aspect to this. But again, like he definitely signed a contract and was there and uh right. he signed a contract we should doing. say just for the clarity of the audience he signed a contract thinking he was going to be in a documentary about jury duty as opposed to anything else right that's what that's what he right. thought was going on right yes that's the contract i'm referring to so i mean as crazy as things got and everything that he uh went through with this i mean they they had him they they had his ink on paper and uh they just put him through it and i i loved the journey i was like here for it I- you, you signed too many of those papers i can tell uh, and, and your expectations about how you'll be treated have been steadily lowered by the industry that you're working in but um we just got a couple of seconds left bill i think i just wanted to quickly mention this is on freebie freebie is a form of what's called fast uh, which is called free ad supported television which is used to be called television um, it, was, it was all free and ad supported, but um, it, it does feel that it's a hit. It's a big, big hit, and and I, I wonder if it's kind of a stalking horse or, or the point of a spear uh, pointing us back in the direction of watching uh, television that has commercials. Yeah, and you know, I know the bills have to be paid. Like, there's that whole thing, but I've gotten so used to not watching commercials. I told you all. I think the only time I see commercials now is if I'm watching a sporting event or election returns, because <laughs> those are things that I want to watch live. Everything else, I'm either streaming or um, I've DVR'd it ahead of time so that I can zip through the commercials. And so it was like a little jarring. And I, 
I also mentioned like whenever the commercial was on, I would just start spe- playing spelling bee. Uh, so the commercial was just in the background noise, yes. but it, 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 it's a dilemma and it's been a dilemma in television economics for a long time yeah i think and in human economics because not everybody can afford to have 18 different subscriptions some people some people need free tv all right we have to take a break here so you'll have time to make some recommendations we will do that right now And uh, Cat Pastor is off today, so it is our honor to be the technically produced by the fifth element, the supreme being, Gina Matruda. And this episode is produced, as usual, by Jonathan McPants. Uh, we've got time now to do some recommendations. Oh, let's just go into outer space right away with Mercy Quay. <laughs> That's fantastic. Um, so listening to the commercial just now, it sounds like uh, using astronomy to process grief is a real recommendation. I just heard that's going to be on Science Friday in a little bit. So that's great. Everyone should listen to that. But um, my uh, endorsement is going to be a recently re- uh, released book by Ashley Vance, a New York Times bestselling author. It's called When the Heavens Went on Sale, um, Misfits and Geniuses Racing to Put Race w- uh, Space Within Reach. And, you know, Ashley Vance wrote a book on Elon Musk um, a while back, really examining Musk's the fascination with space and um, his rise uh, to fame through SpaceX. And so this is going to be a really interesting book on exactly what happens when SpaceX and uh, Blue Origin um, uh, team up, team up, compete to put the heavens within reach. And I think it's going to be, I haven't read it yet. I'm really excited to read it. And it's it's a fantastic book um, per the recommendations of the New York Times. (laughs) Um, Carolyn Payne, uh, give us uh, your recommendation. Sure. So when watching Jury Duty, it made me think of a couple other mockumentary-esque things. uh, And one that it, it had a vibe similar to what you were talking about, Mercy, where you question the morals of what is being done, but is still it, it's sucking you in and you need to watch it and laugh at it, was uh, in the early 2000s, the comeback on HBO with Lisa Kudrow. <laughs> yeah. Still mm-hmm. one of, I think, the most brilliant and underrated things to ever be on TV. And Second. Yes. And Third. watching... Awesome. Yes. So watching Jury Duty, I had these moments where I pictured uh, Lisa Kudrow as Valerie Cherish going, Jane, Jane, and giving the X signal to tell the producers to turn off the camera. Um, You kind of wanted somebody to be able to do that sometimes for this. Uh, So if you have not watched The Comeback or you haven't watched in a long time, I endorse that. All right. And Bill Usman, how about you? Well, Memorial Day weekend, so I thought it was a perfect time to endorse a couple summer fictions, uh, summer reads. First uh, is The Guest by Emma Klein, which is a new novel about a young woman trying to survive by passing herself off as someone who she really isn't. Uh, so she can gain access to a life that's really beyond her reach. Um, this is Klein's third book. She writes in a really spare but evocative style and deals with a lot of dark themes. Uh, and the other one is the new novel by Dennis Lehane, who wrote Mystic, Riz- Mystic River and a passel of other novels. This one is called Small Mercies, 
Hey, Mercy, Small Yay. Mercies, and it's set in South Boston during the 1970s turmoil and violence over school integration and busing. Its central story is a mystery, but he's really doing a lot more with it. And he's challenging us to kind of look at the world through the eyes of people that we would we would usually rather just forget about. Mm. So that's Small Mercies by Dennis Lehane. I do want to say that I loved Emma Klein's book, The Girls, uh, which is sort of a kind of a Charles Manson-like story. Yeah. And I'm about halfway through The Guest. And uh, yeah, we should say, I think it's probably important to point out, she's basically a sex worker or an escort uh, yes. person who has who has put herself into the midst of very, very rich people and then lost some of that. All right. So two things very quickly. One of them is, you know, we have this beautiful new newsletter. Uh, it's a newsletter called The Newsletter. All the cute little faces of all of our panelists today are going to be in there tomorrow with their recommendations in case they went too fast for you, as well as all kinds of other content. And it's a free newsletter. I'm going to make it easy. Just e if you can't figure out how to sign up for it, just email me, Colin, C-O-L-I-N at ctpublic.org. I will sign you up for it. Uh, I can sign you up for it up until 9.59 a.m. tomorrow. <laughs> and then you can, you can see all kinds of We've got, you know, essays and, and Kat uh, usually has, uh, she'll be discussing Below Deck, I think, in her Cat's Corner and stuff like that. The other thing is we're going to kind of end with a song by Tina Turner. I could talk for 10 minutes easily about Tina Turner. Uh, the one thing that I will say that is, you know, she she came into the public consciousness sort of at the time then when when Motown was was creating a more polished kind of sound that they could make into pop hits that would they thought would be maybe more appealing to white audiences who had the money to spend and and Atlantic was and Stax were doing something different something that preserved some of the blackness of the sound but also pursuing a very commercial style because of her control freak husband she didn't really go either one of those routes until she worked with Phil Spector. And I think one of the things, one of the weird benefits of it is she really preserved her own sound. And, and it was a sound that had, no matter how sleek and sophisticated she got, there was just this incredible visceral power uh, of her kind of country roots, not country music roots, but country roots. So let's end with a little bit of Tina Turner. There's, there was never anybody like her and there never will be. 